This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Donald Trump is our 45th president. It is official as of a couple minutes ago, I believe. Our new commander-in-chief is speaking right now. Let's take it live. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation an education system flush with cash but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge and the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We are one nation, and their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams, and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home, and one glorious destiny. The oath of office I take today is an oath of allegiance to all Americans. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American okay, industry. Okay, so I'm going to come in here because I, I, I don't know how long this is going to go. Um, but you get you get the idea. He he took the he took the oath. Uh, he's he is now president of the United States. Uh, it's it's amazing. 
I think we'd all have to agree with that. It is amazing. It is quite a state of affairs with a Trump presidency. Now, I, I have to be honest with all of you. I find it. It is true. People say things are hard to believe or unbelievable. They're incredulous. It does feel somewhat hard to believe in so many ways uh, based on where he came, uh, where he came from in the course of the election, where it was a laugh line to talk about the Trump presidency at the start of the primary. And then later on, it was uh, never going to happen. He was never going to be able to defeat Hillary Clinton. And now here we are. I hope that he does a really good job. I think that there's a lot of reason to believe that there will be some excellent decisions made by the government in the months ahead. But we will have to wait and see on all of that. A Trump presidency is a real thing now. As a New Yorker as well, I have to tell you, and as somebody who had some interactions with the Trumps growing up, this is something that would have been a, a punchline in a movie in the 90s that you know, President Trump, it just never would have never would have occurred to anybody that somebody who was so uh, received so much attention in the press, particularly for his personal life and uh, was just a, a fixture on page six and in the tabloids, social Whatever, whatever we call them, uh, gossip columnists. There we go. <laughs> Social commentary writers, gossip columnists, writing about Trump and his family and the things he said. I, I heard an interview. I forget even how it popped up in my feed, but maybe a week ago, of Donald Trump arguing for about twenty minutes on the Howard Stern show with a gossip columnist, as it turns out, who was a, a guy over who was sleeping with a. Playboy Playmate first or something along those lines. It, I don't know. And he's the president now. And I actually think he's going to do a good job. <laughs> I, know it's, I, I think he'll do some very good things. I know he'll be better than Hillary Clinton. So there's, there's that. He will be better than Hillary Clinton would have been. I, I feel very strongly about that. I also have the, the mixed, emo, well, not the mixed emotions, but the, the recognition that Obama, and I'll get back to Trump in a second. I'm just sharing with you my top line, broad stroke, 30,000 foot view of all this stuff. That Obama uh, is no longer president. It's been eight, eight years. It feels like an eternity. We had all these people in the Obama government that were constantly uh, frustrating those of us who wanted a more honest discussion of what Republicans and Democrats disagreed on with under the Obama administration was eight years of you know, some people want everyone to not have health care and and they want people to get sick and die and they're mean and they don't care other people want Obamacare this is the way that arguments were posed time and again this is the way that they would uh, position themselves and we had to just sit there and listen to it there was no choice if you wanted to follow what the government was doing and follow the news Obama was constantly, constantly out there uh, speaking in a tone that I think we'd have to all agree is condescending if you're a conservative, if you're a Republican or even a libertarian, even a Democratic or even a Democrat centrist. Obama's gone. I saw some of the 
some of the uh, pictures on social media last night of offices that no longer had the Obama framed portrait up in the government. And they've cleared out the White House and you're not going to have a Democrat president for at least four years, maybe eight. It's finally sinking in, isn't it? There was that day of disbelief for many of us. And, and when I say disbelief, I don't mean that it was bad. I, I thought it was good. I just couldn't believe it. The way that some people feel, I assume, when they think they've won the lottery, there's no way. I'm not saying this is as awesome a feeling as, as that would be, but it's just hard to take in the reality. And now here we are, and it is it is a reality. Donald Trump is, is the president of the United States. Uh, his daughter, Ivanka, is now one of the most powerful people in the world. <laughs> and her husband, as well, is a top advisor to the Trump administration, Jared Kushner. I, I had forgotten this. I sat down with uh, Kushner maybe four years ago uh, in a meeting with uh, a Blaze executive. It was just the, just the three of us. I just chatted about media, where everything is going, and thought maybe I'd write some pieces at the time for The Observer. I didn't get around to doing that. But I remember speaking to Jared. He's very, very, uh, very cordial and well-mannered. That's really all I remember. Um, but now these people are running the whole show. It is pretty amazing. Uh, I remember meeting Trump for the first time when I was, I think, in the ninth grade. It might have been in the eighth grade. And I told him that I was going to a party and I was going with his daughter. And he said something like, you look like, a, you know, he was, he was kidding, obviously. He's like, you know, you're a guy who can handle himself. You know, take, make sure you, you kids stay out of trouble, something like that. So he was nice to me. You know, I don't really have much recollection of it other than that. And this guy's now the president. I, I just would not. Who, who could have thought after all the times where it was talked about and. All right. The. the the moment of uh, of shock is wearing off. I, I just watched it. I, I, I watched and, and heard it live as he was sworn in, and then we played for you some of his first speech. It is going to be quite a change in D.C. now. That I think we can all agree on. There will be a very different tone, a very different feeling in that city than there's been uh, for the last eight years. And... Trump has a tremendous ability right now, if, should he choose to do so, to accomplish many of the things that conservatives want. I think that his pick for uh, Secretary of Defense, his pick for Vice President, and the list of judges he would put up for the Supreme Court, those are all things that are at least beginning to win over some of the skeptics on the on the right. I think he can win over quite a bit more. Don't know what exactly he's going to do. This is going to be, I think, something of a wild ride. Even if he sticks to the script that he himself wrote during the campaign and tries to keep the promises that he made to the American people, even if he does all of that, there will be tremendous hurdles. I mean, the media, as you know, is at all-out war with him. I saw a piece last night in the Washington Examiner that 25% of federal government employees said they're going to quit or retire because of Trump's presidency. Now, that's this is sort of like all the celebrities who say that they're going to move to, Cal move to, move to California. They're in California. They're going to move to Canada if the wrong person wins the presidential election, then they never go. 
federal government employees. Maybe some of them will retire, but guess what? They were going to retire anyway. None of them are going to quit their jobs because they don't want to work for Donald Trump. The pay is too good. The expectations, generally speaking, are, let's say, to be polite, too attainable. And the benefits packages and all the rest of it are too enticing. They're not going anywhere. But it does go to show you that 25% of the federal workforce, according to this poll, how accurate is it? We'll have to, we'd have to dive deeper into the numbers. But that they would consider leaving the government because this individual is president before he's done anything. I have to say, it tells you a lot about the leftward turn that the government apparatus, the bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government has made. And here we are. Here we are, America. Donald Trump is president. I'm, I'm smiling to myself and I'm staring out across uh, the street here in New York City and I just am trying to acclimate to this new reality. It just feels weird. Is it really going to change your life or my life in a day-to-day -day sense in the near term? No. Will there be some things that Trump does that, that, uh, that do affect the lives of many Americans? Uh, yes. Yes, I think that's coming. It's certainly not going to be the long, dark night of fascism that some of the protesters. We'll get into some of the protest stuff in a few minutes. But in the meantime, Trump is president. What an astonishing turn of events. It really happened. Not only did he win, despite the Russia dossier and all the media stuff and fake news and Comey at the FBI, the Hatch Act, all the stuff they've been throwing out there. Didn't stop it. Trump got sworn in. 45th president, commander-in-chief, four-year term. Wow. All right, team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. So uh, there's, of course, there's, of course, a number of there are, of course, a number of protests going on in D.C. right now. I've seen uh, photos of protests. This great moment protests. together. Wait, what's this? Why am I hearing stuff? OK, uh, I'm hearing protests um, that there's been some violence and there's a big photo up on drudge of somebody got hit in the back of the head. He's bleeding. Uh, our our old friend Pete Hegseth, who's a Fox Fox News contributor, interviewed some of the protesters on Fox. Uh, they, of course, are yelling, you know, "F the police, F Trump, anarchy now!" Really helpful stuff. You know, the sort of deep philosophical political thoughts that the founding fathers would have been proud to call their own. 
but let's just play some. Of, let, let's play this this audio. This is our friend Pete Hexeth over at Fox News interviewing protesters down in D.C. Here's what we get. Show it's closed. This checkpoint is closed. This checkpoint is closed. This checkpoint is closed. This checkpoint is closed. This doesn't sound like Pete. Do we have Pete or not? This checkpoint is closed. No, no, no. This is Shaman. This is the wrong audio. So I need I need Pete Hegseth. I sent the we sent this clip this morning. This is, this is a funnier one. Uh, they're yelling this checkpoint is closed. I don't even. Okay, uh, that's fine. Let's see if we have. Um, let me know. This when young you, when man, you, get it. you were participating in the fire. What's your name? Uh, my name's Carter, and I actually start, kind of started this fire. So why'd you start that fire, Carter? Uh, it's Carter. Sorry, why'd you start that fire? Because I felt like it, and because I'm just uh saying, screw our president. Okay, well. So they're starting fires, and I don't know. Maybe we'll get Pete on after the break. We can't seem to find find that clip right now. But the uh, they're they're causing all kinds of problems. They're saying stuff that is uh, just insane. And what I find so fascinating is when you point out that there are people marching in the streets in D.C., all you have to do is point it out. You say there are people marching in D.C. claiming that the results of an election are fake and they do not accept them. Not That's what not my president means. And they're wearing, in some cases, masks, even gas masks, and causing property destruction and some violence. When you point this out, people who aren't doing that stuff get mad. And they don't get mad because you're smearing the entire Democratic Party with these loons, while they could take that approach. They just seem to get mad that you're pointing out that this is what happens when a Republican wins. doesn't happen when Democrats win. Didn't happen when Obama won. You didn't have this stuff. You didn't have marches of people across D.C. that were chanting curses and yelling, not my president, and just generally speaking, refusing to comport themselves like responsible adults. Uh, This is the kind of nonsense that I guess we've all come to expect from the loony left, but what do they really think it accomplishes? I try to put myself in the mindset of these protesters who are in that one instance lighting fires, uh, who are doing these things. And I, I try to get myself into a place where I can understand why this is gratifying for them. And it only works if you've created a completely insane narrative in your head that Donald Trump is... I was going to say the Antichrist, but I don't know if they believe in that sort of thing. Donald Trump is is going to destroy everything that you like in this country. That he's going to be some sort of all-powerful president who only does bad things. And therefore, by standing up against him, you are both showing bravery and wisdom. I don't even think Trump's going to upset liberals all that much on too many things. i got to tell you, there'll be a different uh, approach and certainly a different philosophy than what the Obama administration had But I don't see Trump being a conservative ideologue. I don't see Trump pushing uh, for things that are necessarily going to be so catastrophic to the progressive cause, at least not at first. You'd think maybe they could take a wait-and-see approach, but they are not taking a wait-and-see approach. They are out there in force. And they're making all kinds of noise about this. Sh- Shamont, do we have uh, Pete or not? If we don't have it, I'll stop asking for it. But I thought we had it. And, and I, I want it was funny. OK, it was funny because he keeps on 
he he's just asking them stuff and um they ask him stuff and it's their responses we'll, we'll see if we could find a few their responses are are quite amusing and there are a lot of these protests going on across dc the left is on notice that they're no longer going to get their way and see their values reflected from the white house that is true so for some of them that is going to feel like a major change for some of them that alone is reason for protest and being upset and wah wah cry cry all the time uh, the delicate snowflakes of the progressive left are out in full force and unfortunately they are just melting left and right 888-900-3393 freestyle friday is underway team that means action movie quotes are in play we've got awesome guests lined up throughout the show today want to hear from you too give me a call back in a few this is the buck sexton show the blaze radio network Uh, our friend Matt Welch is on the line. He is the editor-at-large of Reason magazine, and he's also co-author of the book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Matt Welch, great to have you, sir. Matt Welch? I'm here. Hello. There we go. Hey, what's up, buddy? I didn't hear you for a second. Good to Hi. have you. So uh, I, I want to I talk to you about all of the things but first, we've got some audio. I think you know Pete Hegseth from over at Fox. He was asking some protesters to explain themselves, and I just love this clip. We want to play it, and I want to hear your thoughts. Let it rip. It looks like this is the stop the Trump pants regime before it starts. Somehow they're going to stop the regime before 12 noon tomorrow when Donald Trump puts his hand on the Bible. I'm going to talk to some of these guys and see what they think. Are you willing to talk? No? Sir, you got these signs. Are you willing to talk to us? Why are they a fascist? Why are they fascist? Trump and Pence are illegitimate. Lots of chants, not a lot of answers. What are you protesting? The United States of America is a country that is based off the opposition of tyrannical governments. Cite the American Revolution for example. Everybody else, they call their popular vote. They call it the vote. They don't call it the popular They call it the vote. I'm a We the People supporter. So if you're for Hillary Clinton, would you acknowledge she campaigned in the wrong states? The majority of people think that he's illegitimate. <laughs> I think you should acknowledge that David Duke was a head member of the KKK. And did Donald Trump not totally disavow uh, David Duke? So where, where, are your, where are your facts? I have the video. We can easily show it to you. David Duke endorsed me? Okay. All right. I disavow. Okay. You shouldn't let people in from countries where terrorists like ISIS are trying to infiltrate our country. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to, like, make people... Tell us their religion. That's not what America's about. What about Somalia? Is ISIS Al Shabaab? Is Al Shabaab not seeking to commit terrorism from my home state of Minnesota? Absolutely no. They are. You're right. You should perhaps be careful. You're right. You don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. As you can tell, we have a very tolerant group out here. As 
Someone's throwing their phone at me, so that's apparently tolerant as well. Why are you wearing a gas mask and a tactical vest? Are you a... <laughs> <laughs> are you a scuba diver? Absolutely not. You say we live in dangerous times. No, are you talking to ISIS? Are you talking about ISIS? I'm talking about Donald Trump. Do you prefer to live in the Soviet Union? Hell yeah. <laughs> Stalin would be a hell of a lot better than Trump. Stalin would be better than Trump? Yes, he would. Do you know that uh, Stalin killed 50 million people? Did you know that the population increased 1.6% under Stalin? Russia's accepting visa applications right now. Would you like to go? I'd be Nice thrilled. work from our friend Pete Hegseth there over at Fox News. Matt... Wow. Did you know that the population increased 1.7% under Stalin? I, I got to say, I actually didn't know that. Dude, you know. First of all, I don't think it's, well, I don't know if it's true or not, but go ahead. <laughs> it doesn't sound true to me. Hippie punching is, uh, is, a, is a sport that uh, each team loves to rediscover every eight years. That's, a, that's what I'm going to say about that. You can find a lot of MSNBC uh, hippie punching or actually uh, tricorn hat punching at uh, Tea Party rallies in 2009. You're not going to get smart people at a political rally at all. And the, the, the biggest mistake that these people are making, the protesters, besides not being able to uh, sustain a logical thought for very long, is <coughs> excuse me, the bronchitis is flaring up again. Uh, I was going to say, this doesn't even sound like Matt Welch today. Are you okay, buddy? You must, you, you're yeah. a trooper coming on the show, even, even it's, wounded. It's unclear. Um, no, uh, the problem is the people using the word illegitimate. Because, listen, if you thought that Donald Trump is an incipient fascist, which these people do, that's what they think, that's what they're worried about. If, you th if you're worried about his authoritarianism, and I am, I'm worried about his authoritarianism. I, don't, I have enough faith in America that we're not going to become kind of fascist country, and I don't think he is fascist. But let's say you were worried about him being an authoritarian. What would you do strategically? Right? I'm not talking about would you protest, would you not protest. I'm talking about you would do what you can to buttress, to support the institutions of American life that are outside of the direct control of the president. And one of those institutions is countywide elections, state by state, by county, whatever, precinct by precinct elections. These people are saying that he is illegitimate because they, like John Lewis, are passing along a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory that Russia hacked the election. I hate Russia as much as you hate Russia, Buck Sexton. <laughs> and I'm sorry for coughing on your radio show. But they didn't hack the election. They released information that, for all we can tell, is, was true. They tried to muck up. I'm sure they wanted Trump to win. I'm sure Putin's happy and all that kind of stuff. But no one got in between us and the voting booth. So the election is legitimate. It's a, it's a reflection of what Americans wanted to vote for. He didn't win a majority of the popular vote because we have an electoral college, damn it. And until you change that, and until I hear you talking about changing that before the election results, you can get stuffed. But if you're running down the legitimacy of the vote, you're running down the very institutions that you need on your side to be a bulwark against anything like creeping authoritarianism. And I see Democrats all over the place tripping on their own business by trying to run down those very institutions that they need. And you got to just deal with the whiplash and the intellectual dishonesty that comes from the, the left, which initially was telling us all, uh, hey, man, you know, Trump better Trump better learn to deal with the fact that Hillary's going to win and he better not undermine our democratic institutions. I there were debate moderators who were asking if he would accept the results of the election. That was supposed to be a big gotcha question because he said things like, well, we'll see what happens. And then everybody was, oh, Trump, it's you know, he's just 
ready to to storm the Bastille or whatever. I mean, it's just crazy. And now we see the other side. But go ahead. That was two weeks of the news cycle in like October. Was that that was leading the news on the nightly news? Will Trump accept the results of the election? Let's ask someone who's never met Trump in their lives, but who's playing a surrogate on him on uh, the cable network. Let's ask them if they think Trump will accept the results of the election. And where are those people now? They're silent. I mean, look at and Chuck Matt- Todd interviewed. <laughs> sorry, Chuck Todd interviewed John Lewis. He's the one who got it, the illegitimate quote. Go listen to that interview. It's amazing. It's like in these dulcet, gentle tones. And uh, John Lewis says, uh, I, I think he's, he's not a legitimate president. And Chuck uh, Todd's like, wow, that's going to send some reverberations, John. Uh, it's like, oh, that's one way to respond to it. Another is, hmm, respond to it the way that you responded to everybody back in October, which is, hold on. You're calling into question the legitimacy of the elections. That's bad for our democratic uh, process and civic institutions. Nobody has had that response. They've had the response instead of John Lewis is an American hero. Donald Trump is running him down. He must be racist. The end. Uh, and it's just yeah. It seems very clear, by the way, that John that John Lewis was the choice to to do this because he is politically invincible and we all understand that right so this is why anybody and and he's not the only one i've said john mccain also because of what he did for his country is not quite as politically invincible but also has been using that to great effect for his own benefit for a long time and to to say that the president is not invincible i mean sorry to say the president is not legitimate is to say some really nasty things about the very institutions that, as you point out, they're going to need to have in place if they want to actually keep Trump from doing the scary things they think is going to happen. And it also reduces their moral authority when they rightly complain that he's full of beans when he says that, you know, uh, that there's maybe two or three million illegal votes in this election. And that's why he didn't win the popular vote, because Lord knows what they're doing in California, which I mean, there's almost not enough adult illegal aliens to make as many votes as he was claiming. And when he says that, that is also running down the legitimacy of our civic institutions and should be called out. But they are defrocking themselves. They're taking the guns out of their own holster by supporting what is a conspiracy theory about Russia at this point. Not that they tried to muck things up. Of course they did. But what did they succeed at doing? Uh, And that is a, a number of leaps of faith. And you're hearing that normally among especially the congressmen who boycotted today's events on uh, the National Mall. But you're hearing this is a kind of normal Democratic discourse. And I think it's just a strategic blunder of epic proportions, as well as a, a beautiful and ever-rich uh, kind of display of hypocrisy for all of us to look at. Now, Matt, we also have a big change, not just Trump as president, but Obama no longer president. You were debating, I see this on Reason.com, you were debating with Jonathan Chait, down at the Soho Forum, which sounds like everybody gets a uh, caramel macchiato when they walk in. Uh, but at the Soho Forum, you guys debated whether Obama was a great president, and you said no. Why? Well, uh, primarily, I think <coughs> sorry, that um, you cannot be considered a great president. There's probably only one president I can think of in history who's widely considered to be great, um, who didn't have an easily understood great achievement in foreign policy. And that would be Abraham Lincoln. He's got other things he had to deal with. Uh, uh, and maybe he did something in foreign policy of which I am not aware. I, I hold that up as a possibility. Um, however, it kind of makes sense. 
Um, and in Chait's book, it, the foreign policy chapter, he doesn't even try. He's sort of like, ah, well, this isn't the strongest area. And I argue you just can't be a great president when you look at what were the, the biggest strategic challenges of his time and how did he do uh, in the fight against radical Islamic terrorism. I would argue that uh, he didn't noticeably improve that thing. Um, you can't really point at any one thing that he did. I mean, I liked, you might disagree, or uh, certain listeners might disagree, the opening to Cuba, uh, the changing of that policy, I think, is, is the correct move. I wish he would have gotten more concessions out of the Castro regime. Uh, but that's kind of small beer in the scheme of things. Our challenges are against spread of radical Islamic terrorism, um, the uh, increasing... Uh, instability in the Middle East, which I think he added to, he didn't subtract from, uh, and then the, uh, the uh, expansionary revanchism of Russia, which he went into, into office. Remember, I mean, in, in 2008, uh, in the summer, that's when Russia was meddling about in Georgia, and the Democratic Convention at the time was all about uh, how you know, Joe Biden saying, we would not let this happen on our watch, and Right, you know, we're going to make Russia pay for its deeds, and, and we're going to treat them differently, and, and part of it by treating them with more respect. And let's see how that's going to work out. Like every single president needs to re- learn that treating Vladimir with respect and Putin with respect, uh, it, you don't win uh, at the end of that. It has nothing to do with his game. He doesn't care about that. Um, so he didn't do anything. And not only that, I mean, look at Afghanistan. Uh, and again, you might have a different view than I do, but like, What's the difference between our situation now in Afghanistan and what it was at the beginning of 2009? One Eight the, more years, more lives, a lot of money spent, and the strategic situation is worse. That's the, that, that is the situation. Those are our people who died. Seventy percent or so, two-thirds of Americans who died in Afghanistan did it in the Obama presidency. That war started, last I looked, in 2001. He was supposed to be not just the anti-war president, but the anti-dumb war president. Meanwhile, and also he was supposed to be, um, this is more of a libertarian analysis, but he was supposed to be uh, the guy who was going to rein in executive power and who was going to only do things that Congress authorized. What he did in Libya was such a thumb in the nose of Congress and violated the war powers resolution to such a degree that when Congress said, hey, look, it's been 60 days, you got to come to us. He responded, no, I don't, because there's nothing warlike going on here. It's a kinetic military action. And it's also one in which he just basically said, "Ah, this one city might be a massacre. So this is our reason to go to war without any kind of plan for what happens afterwards. And he blew up, blew the thing up. I think really rapidly expanded the ability for ISIS to develop and to have territory. Granted, it's hard to do foreign policy. It's hard to deal with anything. You know, there's a lot of different ways that the Obama administration has tried to deal with uh, Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, each of them are different in their own ways. But you can't point to any of it as a success, I don't think. Uh, I agree with you, Matt Welch, on that stuff. we got to bounce here. Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, his latest on Reason.com. Mr. Welch, happy Inauguration Day. Drink some tea with lemon and honey if you think that'll help. I think it will. Good luck to you, Thank sir. You. Feel better. Come back fun. soon. Thank you. All right, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
All right, team, it's Freestyle Friday. Phones are open. Action Movie Quote Friday is also in effect. And we have Bruce in Missouri on the line. What's up, Bruce? Hey, Buck, how are you? Good, I, how are uh, you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a good day. Uh, uh, I do have a comment, not on, on today's stuff that I've been listening to while I've been uh, waiting on the phone, but on the, uh, the comments that you were making during Obama's last press conference slash speech the other day. And uh, I had some advantages here because I'm a podcast listener. I've always been a podcast listener uh, ever since the weekend show. Uh, oh, wow. Thank you. Buck. Go team Buck. And Go team uh, Buck. So, so I'm always listening to it the next day. So I had already heard some of, not as much as I heard on your show, but some of what he said. And my initial reaction was exactly like yours. You know, you need to be tenacious, but they weren't tenacious. You need to hold, you know, the president accountable, but they didn't hold the president accountable. When I listened to it on your show and I heard the larger snippet, everything that he says, now I'm never going to ask you, go back and listen to it again, because I wouldn't do that, right? We finally get to not have to listen to it. But having listened to it again while I was listening on your show on the podcast, that entire section was a statement to both the press and to his partisans who are going to be supporting the press we on got 10 what seconds. they're supposed to do for the Trump administration. And, okay, my points. Having you in this building has made us a better administration. Don't move us. Don't move them out, like Trump is saying. All right, thank you, buddy. Hour, hour two. Buck Sexton. I tried. On Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Hour two of Freestyle Friday is upon us. Also Inauguration Day, but we're going to take a turn into something else. Just something that I thought would be interesting and fun for us all to talk about and learn about. We're joined by Dr. Costas Ephimio. He is a physicist and associate professor at the University of Central Florida, he uh, published a paper a few years ago called Hollywood Blockbusters, Unlimited Fun but Limited Science Literacy. That's right. He tells us what's real and what's not when it comes to physics and Hollywood blockbusters. Dr. Ephemio, good to have you. Uh, thanks a lot for allowing me to talk about physics and uh, movies. All right. So you, you actually teach a class on this. If you had to give a grade overall to Hollywood paying attention to physics in real life when it comes to uh, action movies, big-budget movies. Well, what do you think the overall grade should be? Uh, I think the, low, uh, the grade would be low, but I don't want to be really negative, so I would avoid to uh, say an actual grade, uh, but I would say that it is low. So, okay, let's talk about some of these. Uh, you, you actually work through... Uh, movies that are particularly bad when it comes to physics. Uh, and then we'll get into some of the movies that are good when it comes to physics. But first, 
Armageddon. Why is Armageddon so bad when it comes to reality and physics? I think everyone listening has probably seen that movie. Yes, uh, that was a very exciting movie, actually, and my students always uh, like it. Uh, uh, for some reason, they find, it, find the movie very entertaining. Um, fortunately, uh, the big uh, plan of NASA uh, is a plan that does not work at all. You know, an asteroid is coming uh, towards Earth. Um, uh, apparently, it's going to destroy Earth. And then NASA decides to send um, uh, a nuclear bomb to split the asteroid such that the two fragments will move above and beneath the Earth. The problem is uh, when you work the numbers um, according to what the movie gives to us, uh, the two fragments do split, but they separate only by 200 meters. So uh, the plan of NASA is to... Uh, instead of having one a single asteroid colliding with Earth, to have two pieces colliding in very, very small distance among them. So it's not a plan at all. So they don't save the Earth, as we see in the movie. And uh, you say in Independence Day, I thought this was interesting, uh, the mothership of the aliens is so big that they don't need to fire any weapons? What do you mean? Absolutely. I mean, it, the, the, the spaceship is so huge. And in fact, the second movie that uh, it was um, more recent, um, uh, you know, they, you know it's, it's even worse because uh, the spaceship is even bigger. Now, what happens um, really with such a big uh, spaceship, as it approaches Earth, Earth is orbiting around the sun, uh, there will be a big uh, perturbation on the Earth's orbit. And it is very, very possible that, um, you know, either the moon or the, well, certainly the moon, but even the Earth will be knocked out of the orbit and then will start wandering in space away from the sun, which means the ultimate death for us. Huh. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, all right. And Spider-Man, the Green Goblin holds... Uh, MJ with one hand and a cable supporting a train full of children with the other hand, other than the fact that he'd have to be really strong. But you admit that you're saying superheroes can have superpowers, but the right. world is still supposed to be the world. So why is this? Why is this no good? Right. So I will I will let uh, um, Green Goblin be as strong as uh, everyone would like. Uh, but the problem here is that there are two unequal forces on the two sides. And one force is very big, and the other force is very small. So what happens if you if you accept the laws of our universe? Uh, if if the net force, if the sum of the two forces is not zero, then the object is going to move towards the direction in which the bigger force points. So in this case, the Green Goblin has to move towards the side uh, where the train is. Uh, so there is no way he can actually balance his body without another force on uh, MJ's side. Gotcha. Um, and now you say that of the movies, of the big movies that people might be familiar with that uh, deal with, with physics and, and do a bad job, the movie Core is perhaps the worst. Uh, Core is what? They, they're drilling to the center of the Earth and they're going to set off right. nukes? Absolutely, yes, yes. So... Um, in that movie, uh, the center of the, of, of the Earth has stopped rotating, and that's, of course, a bad thing, as, uh, you know, we learn 
And, um, uh, you know, the plan here is actually to drill in the center of the Earth, uh, place um, a nuclear bomb, explode it, and then uh, the center of the Earth will start rotating again. Um, well, of course, uh, the drilling is a problem by itself. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, if you, if you look actually at the data, uh, we don't have mines that are very, very deep in the earth. Uh, we have probably drilled um, a mine up to 15 kilometers inside the earth, let's say 20 kilometers is the best we can do. The radius of the earth is 6,500 kilometers. So you can actually understand here, it's 15 versus 16 versus uh, 6,500 um, kilometers. Um, and that's one of the problems. Uh, unfortunately, core, core is uh, it's so bad that in every scene, basically, there is um, uh, a mistake in physics. Um, so we keep seeing mistakes one after the other that, that happened. Um, and um, I don't know if, if the audience does not pay attention, of course, or, or maybe they learn physics a little the wrong way. Um, and uh, one more for you. I just want to ask, you said that movies that kind of get it right are Interstellar and uh, 2001? What, yes. uh, tell, yes. Interstellar yes. people really liked, but movies. go ahead. Um, 2001 is a little older, but, uh, you know, Kubrick uh, had um, a group of uh, scientists advising him uh, how to make things right. So I think probably he was one of the first people to to try to have correct physics. And, um, and the movie uh, was a, a huge success. More recently, uh, Interstellar, which was also a big um, uh, successful movie, uh, is a movie that um, uh, is getting um, uh, the science correct. The person behind the movie is Professor Kip Thorne from uh, Caltech, a uh, very interesting person. Uh, when, he, when he wrote um, of, of of the movie, his vision was actually to have a very nice, entertaining movie, and at the same time to have the science correct, or at least not to contradict anything known. And as far as I understand, he had many discussions and even arguments with the director and uh, the screenwriters about how to, to show the science in the movie. The final product, actually, uh, is, 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 is quite believable, even for scientists. So it's not, um, it's not a movie where uh, things happen uh, the wrong way. Uh, it's a movie where um, anything that happens is, a, is something possible. It could happen, um, although there is no proof that can happen this particular way. All right. Dr. Kostas Ephthimio, physicist and associate professor at the University of Central Florida, he is the author of Hollywood Blockbusters, Unlimited Fun, but Limited Science Literacy. Dr. Ephthimio, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Of course. Uh, team, the phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Freestyle Friday continues. Bring me some action quotes, if you dare. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, I want to prepare you all for what the media coverage of all this stuff is going to be like now that Trump is president. Really interesting, as he called it, a tweet storm from Ted Frank, who is, um, well, what? who is, uh, I, I can't look it up because I'll lose the, lose the thread here, but he's a, he's a verified dude on Twitter. And this is what he writes. Why does the MSM have, the mainstream media, have so little credibility with the right? Colleagues, it's time for some game theory. And he goes, start by reading Molly Hemingway on how abusively GOP nominees are being treated. I talked about that yesterday, and I cited Hemingway's piece, too, before this tweet storm from uh, Ted Frank. Then he goes into another story that I didn't get into, which is that Trump's Treasury pick, uh, Mnuchin, Steve Mnuchin, has this story out about him. It was pushed by Politico, and then many other sites seized on it, that Mnuchin's bank foreclosed on a 90-year-old widow's home over 27 cents, as Frank points out here. And he goes into the details. One, widow was never foreclosed on and never lost her home. Two, it wasn't Mnuchin's bank that brought the suit. Other than that, accurate. He says, the story on its face made no sense. No court permits that kind of foreclosure and banks lose money on the deal. And he says that he checked for Polk County, Florida for the court dockets and the story was wrong. He said four minutes of fact checking would have shown that. He said the Politico simply repeated the lawyer's claim without checking or deliberately shaded story to be misleading. He says that HuffPost, The Hill, Vanity Fair, CNN, all just repeated Politico's false reporting. Uh, Story pops up again at a hearing. He says that Greenhouse New York Times tweeted the bogus HuffPost story and he let him know that it's wrong. And then he says people are tweeting at him telling him he's wrong. Because Politico said so. And so he's a jerk because Politico said that he's wrong. He says, don't take my word for it. Through all the documents, they're public. I'll step through the sequence with some excerpts. Mnuchin was head of One West. Uh, Citigroup buys out the bank in 2015. Mnuchin, not the head of Citigroup, just a shareholder on the board. And anyway, he he goes into all the details here. Uh, The bottom line is that... um, this is just all wrong. The whole story they ran with is wrong. And it's it's amazing. Uh, suit is dumb and waste of money. Lofton only owes 27 cents. No court is going to permit a foreclosure and bank would lose money if they did. It was quickly dismissed when the error was pointed out. We have a counterclaim pending. No foreclosure took place. So there was no foreclosure. This was all false. This whole story about Steve Mnuchin evil, greedy, vulture capitalist running a bank that would foreclose on a 90-year-old widow who owed 27 cents. Political runs with it, and then Vanity Fair, HuffPost, all the others run with it too. It was, a, it was a false story. Now, this is where you start to get into the uh, designation the media loves to run to whenever they do this. They say, well, it's not fake news, Buck. Don't call it fake news. This isn't some... Russian troll creating a story hoping that it gets traction based in nothing. Okay, but at what point, I do think it is fair to ask, at what point is reckless reporting equivalent to fake news? At what point is, I want this story to be true, therefore I'm not going to do the very basics of journalism here 
and just going to run with this narrative to cause damage to a person or an organization or an idea that I don't like. When is that worthy of being called fake news? Do we have to sit around and pretend that it's all it's all just a big mistake that anybody could have made? You know, there are mistakes and then there are blunders, there are big mistakes. And when you report an entirely false story, one would think, one would think that there would be a little bit more uh, humility from those in the media who do this sort of thing. But no, they like to sneer at us and say that the only real fake news comes from the right. And that's just a flat out lie. And, you know, if it's a question of whether or not there's some basis for the reporting of a story, no matter how flimsy, uh, no matter how uh, lacking in credibility the initial sources may be, well, I think that tells you a lot. It tells you a lot that they would go forward with this stuff. So we just need to be clear that there is a repeated, uh, a repeated problem that is specifically getting worse under the Trump administration. And that problem is that the left-wing media goes with stories that are not true and then quietly scales them back when confronted, but the damage has already been done, so it doesn't really matter. You know, this is sort of uh, similar to how in a, in a court of law, you know, if you stand in front of the jury, well, this could actually get you a mistrial. But, you know, when somebody brings something up and they go, you know, objection, Sometimes they bring it up knowing there's going to be an objection because they just want it to be said in front of the jury. They want them to hear something. And that's why this is advocacy journalism. They're acting as as though they're advocates. They're trying to push for one side over the other. Uh, also, as an aside here, the anti-Trump uh, protests are, are pretty bad. There's uh, some video popping up on social media I'm seeing here of... Uh, Black Block. It's so interesting. Why is it hard for media to understand? Black Block is not a group. Those of you who listen to this show know this. Black Block is a tactic used by primarily anarchists, but generally just left-wing protesters. They all dress in black. They move in a group. I'm sorry. They all dress in black. They move in a group. And it comes from Germany in the 1970s nuclear protest there. One, because it gives them a sense of they're wearing some kind of a uniform and, ooh, they're all in black. It also makes it harder to arrest them because if they're covering their faces and they're all wearing black, it's tough for law enforcement to give a description of them. They obviously at night are harder to see. I mean, these are all the... There's a reason why they're all dressed in black head to toe. There's a reason why ninjas used to do this too. Okay, we get it. Of course, these guys are not ninjas unless you think that it takes particular skill to smash the window of a Starbucks on K Street in D.C. These are the, these are the kinds of things that they have been doing. So, uh, they're, yes, they, they are acting out. They are being childish. They are doing exactly the things that many of us uh, expected them to do. I don't know how serious the violence has been yet, uh, but, yeah. Uh, and and I, I guess we could we could talk a little bit, although I missed the end of the speech because on on air with you. But Obama went after. I'm sorry, Trump went after Obama's uh, Washington here. This is the headline on Drudge Report. And Donald Trump's first speech as president was classic Donald Trump. He's saying that he's going to really shake things up. 
given what the media, I think there's one part of all this that the media never takes into account. The, the more they try to destroy him, the more they go all in, zero-sum, scorched earth against Donald Trump, the harder it would be for them to, down the line, try to co-opt him at some level. I think this is a very important a very important component that they do not factor into what they're doing. They're just so focused on trying to destroy Trump. They're not given a much choice but to be the president that they're somewhat afraid of. I mean, he's not going to do the things that they're saying they're staying up late in a cold sweat worried about, but that he would betray his base on the various promises he's made. Why? He's never going to be accepted by the New York Times. He's never going to be accepted by the Washington Post by the broadcast news networks? Never. Not in a million years. It's just not going to happen. So with that said, why would he change his mind? And he's, yeah, he's a guy with a big ego, and he's a guy with tendencies towards narcissism. We can argue on how how profound that is, a character trait for him, but he does certainly have that in him. And here we are, thinking that the media constantly attacking him very much personally and his family, they're backing him into something of a corner, although maybe he's backing them into a corner. It's another way to look at it. That will happen soon. So uh, we'll talk more about uh, the, the Trump speech, but I've also I've got more fun and unusual guests coming up, team. So uh, much more coming back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Professor of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science at Drexel University, Dr. Sean O'Donnell. He is an expert on tropical insect ecology, focusing on bees, wasps, and ants. Uh, Dr. O'Donnell, thank you very much for calling in. Oh, it's my pleasure. So recently, bumblebees were listed. I saw this piece in USA Today, which got me thinking about this. As an endangered or a bumblebee, I should say, a type of bumblebee was listed as an endangered species for the first time. Um, for lack of a better way of putting it, this is a bees are a big deal to us, aren't they? Not just because they make honey. Take it away, Doc. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there, you know, there are two really important uh, kind of messages that come out of this listing, and just uh, you know, thinking about bees and their fate in general. Um, one is that bees are uh, in addition to commercial uh, honeybee keeping, which is where, as you, as you said, we get our, our honey and beeswax, um, bees really kind of the most important thing that they do for us from a commercial standpoint is provide pollination services. And uh, domesticated honeybees that are being trucked around and, and used on a massive scale are, of course, you know, really important in pollination. But we rely very heavily on native wild bees for pollination of lots of crops and, and other kinds of plants as well. And, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, pardon the pun, th those kinds of bees uh, tend to fly under the radar. And uh, so I think that this listing of this native 
Bumblebee is important because it helps potentially draw attention to to that fact. You know, it's not just this bumblebee, but a lot of bees are doing very, very poorly and provide these pollination services. And the other thing that I think is important about this is it's sort of, if you will, a flagship um, case for, again, you know, hopefully driving a, a wider understanding of the threats to bees and the importance of bees. So, you know, hopefully just by having this one species, as you said, this one bumblebee species is being listed. But uh, really, they're probably serving as an indicator of what's happening to a lot of other bees. And I live in New York City. Uh, Cockroaches are everywhere and indestructible. (laughs) Why, why, Why aren't they dying off? What's wrong with the bees? Yeah, you know, I was, you know, thinking about this and thinking about um, what the implications of this uh, listing of this bee and, and kind of the threats to some of these native bees. I mean, one of the things that we are seeing happen all around the world is not just, uh, you know, species extinctions and loss of species. What we're seeing is uh, kind of a homogenization of the wild world where species that uh, live in natural environments, species that tend to require undisturbed habitats are disappearing or declining and shrinking in their ranges, if not absolutely going extinct. Uh, And what we're seeing is kind of a replacement with this set of animals, including insects, as you said, cockroaches, that like to be around humans. And, you know, one of the really kind of horrifying scenarios for me as an ecologist is to think of a world that's kind of covered with, you know, as you said, you know, cockroaches, particularly the cockroaches that like to live in our buildings, and uh, the rat species and mouse species, rodents that associate with humans, pigeons, starlings, house sparrows. Um, you know, this is kind of the, you know, the, the animals that do well around humans, that like to live around humans in general are doing well, and this is at the expense of the animals that don't do well around humans. And, uh, you know, these bees, these wild bees, bumblebees, are an example of a species that really needs intact wild habitats. So, yeah, I was going to, what's, what's causing the drop-off in the bee population? I feel like people like bees. They do. Well, you know, this is a, a very, uh, potentially a, a very sad case, because uh, if our understanding of what's happening to that bumblebee is correct, it was a really unanticipated uh, impact driven by human activities, but certainly not intentional. It looks pretty likely now that the massive increase in commercialization of bumblebees for pollinating crops in controlled settings like greenhouses may have contributed to the introduction or increases of pathogens, of diseases of bees into wild bee populations. And there's some evidence to suggest that this particular a very dramatic decline or die-off of this native bees of of, uh, Bia, Bombus aphanus, the one that's been listed, uh, may have been contributed to very heavily by diseases, pathogens escaping into the wild. So it's not like people are, you know, out actively persecuting bees on purpose. And in fact, uh, if it weren't for some bee biologists paying really close attention to this, you know, admittedly very obscure animal, it might have gone extinct and no one would have even noticed. It's not something that's, uh, if you will, on our radar, even though we like bees. Uh, you know, I think that a bee like this could disappear from the landscape and most people would never notice, the, certainly, you know, the, the loss of the bee itself. Um, the problem is that when these kinds of animals start to disappear, we can suffer negative consequences because of losing their services and the role that they play in the ecology.
There's no there's no insect other than the bee that can do this pollination process. Is that correct? It's this that's, is like yeah, bees that's a great, are the only game that's a in great town. Question. I mean, you know, there there are two two interesting things about this. You know, one is that bumblebees, in particular, the way that they forage and the way that they visit flowers is very different from the ways that honeybees visit flowers. And so bumblebees, because they're big and robust and they're able to buzz their wing muscles when they visit flowers, they can pollinate plants that other kinds of bees, like honeybees, are uh, really lousy at pollinating. So that's you know, one interesting uh, issue. And then another is that if we look across lots of wild bees, other kinds of wild bees, you know, not just bumblebees, um, many of them are highly specialized. So bumblebees and honeybees are actually unusual among bees because they will visit lots of different kinds of flowers. Most of the bees out there will only visit one species or a very small number of species of flowers, and oftentimes that specialized relationship goes both ways. So in other words, the native bee will visit a certain kind of flower. Very few or no other bees will visit that flower. And so it's like when you lose the insect, you're in danger of losing the plant as well. Huh. Uh, do all no, Just a, a couple of questions from the, the layman's corner over here. Uh, do all bees sting or are there some that don't sting? There are some bees that don't sting. Um, most native bees here do. Uh, a lot of them are solitary, so they're not going to be really dangerous. They wouldn't sting you unless you actually grab them. They would never, you know, kind of come after you. Um, the ones that we worry about most are the social bees, and they're, they're going to be stinging, you know, usually in the context of defending their nests. So if you don't grab bees, they're not likely to sting you. But there's a huge array of species of bees that live in the tropics that are called stingless bees. The, they're also social bees, very interesting because they have actually lost their sting uh, over evolutionary time. But one of the things that's interesting about these so-called stingless bees is they do maintain some weaponry. They usually use their, their mandibles or their mouth parts. And a lot of them have really nasty chemical compounds associated with their bites um, that can be very, very painful. Between a bee and a wasp, generally, which is it worse to get stung by? <laughs> You're an expert There's in both. a lot of variation in you know, how bad stings are. I actually have a, a friend and colleague named Justin Schmidt um, who's uh, received some press recently. He just published a book. Uh, he actually developed a scale of subjective sense of pain that humans experience. What's the book called? We'll give, we'll give him a plug. You give your colleague's uh, book a plug. What's it called? Uh, uh, his book is called The Sting of the Wild. Okay. And again, and his name who's is at Justin the top Schmidt. of the list of the, of, of, of the insect kingdom uh, of bees and wasps and ants? Uh, which are the worst ones to get, to get bitten or stung by? Yeah, it, it, really, it, you know, it really depends on the species. But I would say, on average, I would have to rank the wasps as the worst Stingers. There are some wasps that are just absolutely fantastically painful um, when you get stung. And there aren't too many bees that really reach that level of pain. And are those wasps that are here, like the things that I see sometimes indoors in you know, cold weather that seem to like to you know, have little nests in the northeastern United States that, you know, well, I think people usually refer to them as hornet. A hornet is a wasp, right? Am I using the terminology? That's uh, a, people... hornet, a hornet is a wasp. Yeah, a hornet is kind of a, a common name for a wasp that has a large body size. Um, there is one species of really nasty large-bodied hornet, hornet sorry, that's been uh, introduced into the U.S. It's the uh, European hornet. Um, they pack a wallop. They're in a genus called Vespa, and there are species of Vespa in the Old World tropics in Asia, uh, particularly in China, that are 
absolutely huge in body size and extremely painful uh, when they sting. And there are actually um, stories of those kinds of hornets killing people outright, you know, not just based on allergy, but actually killing people outright with their stings, which uh, sounds like a pretty lousy way to go to me. One sting or like a lot of stings? Uh, No, it would take more than one, but the fact that they can actually do it, I think, is, you know, really kind of impressive and intimidating. Yeah. This is like the, ter- the terminators of the insect ecology world. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Ants, I, I, I definitely wouldn't want to tangle with them. I've seen, uh, I've seen some of those Nature Channel documentaries, you know, Discovery and those kinds of places, or Animal Planet. Bullet ants, they're the worst, right? Or they're worse bullet ants. Bullet ants are bad, yeah. I've been stung by a bullet ant once. Um, it was really fantastically painful. You know, I would say it wasn't as bad as some of the legends or stories that I've heard. But it was a definitely memorable uh, experience. The bullet ants thing is interesting because, you know, a lot of other, you know, if you've ever been stung by a honeybee or a, a yellow jacket, there's kind of that chemically burning sensation that goes along with being stung. The bullet ant pain is very mechanical. So it felt a lot like someone taking a nail. Uh, I, I happened to get stung in the thumb and it felt like somebody just took a nail and drove it into my thumb and then just kept hitting it with a hammer over and over again for several hours. Um, really, really bad. Man. All right. Yeah. Uh, important, important safety tip, everybody. Stay away yeah, from, yeah. stay away from bullet Stay ants. away from bullet well, ants. Uh, yeah. What, what, just one, one more for you, uh, Dr. Sean O'Donnell from uh, Drexel university. Uh, what what can we do to what can we do to save the bees? Is there a campaign? I feel like this would lend itself to social media. Well, save the bees. People like bees. I, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are things that people can do actually that could really make a difference in helping with native bees. And um, one of those things that people can do, you know, if you're lucky enough to be a property owner and you've got a yard, if you plant native vegetation and flowers for the bees to visit you can actually make a difference in local bee population just by providing them uh, resources to use. All right. Dr. Sean O'Donnell, Professor of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science at Drexel University. Anywhere you want to direct people, uh, your website, or anywhere they can follow you on social media? Um, gosh, I do, I do have a, a website. I guess if, if people are interested in following up, if you look me up on the uh uh, our, my department webpage at Drexel. The, again, it's the Bees Department, Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science. Uh, you can find a link to my webpage there. Cool. We've got, we've got some beekeepers in the audience, actually, Doc. So there you go. Uh, th- thank you so much, Professor. We appreciate you coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Team, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a freestyle today. We're talking bees. That was an, that was an angry bee. This bee will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. I spoke to you earlier about this team. I think actually last week, and I'm just seeing it now in the Daily Caller. Sometimes I pick up stories during the show that I wanted to touch on. This is from the Daily Caller News Foundation. A Democratic lawmaker plans to initiate 
Yep, you guessed it. Impeachment proceedings against President-elect Donald Trump as soon as possible, according to a Wednesday interview with the Young Turks. Democratic Rep. Jamie Raskin from Maryland's 8th Congressional District uh, serves as a professor of constitutional law. Right now, it looks pretty obvious that he's in a collision course with the emoluments clause, Raskin asserted. He has refused to divest himself of tens of billions of dollars of business interests around the world, doing business with foreign governments. Yeah, sure, man. You're going to get Trump out of office on the emoluments clause. You always know that the you always know that the left is is freaking out when they start trying to find interpretations of laws that 99% of Americans have never heard of and don't know anyway uh, to try to oust a president from from office or to oust somebody from a race or from whatever. This is this is where all of this is going. Like this is kind of an obscure congressman who's trying to make some uh, trying to make some noise here and get some attention, I suppose, in a sense. I'm falling into the trap. It's a trap. Uh, but there you have it. But do we have anybody with any action movie quotes? I thought I saw one a second ago. I was ready. N- N- Shamat, anybody up? On, and and no, nobody wants a piece? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Come on. Somebody needs to bring me, bring me that action movie noise. I'm sure you got something for me. Um, I just want to tell you, next hour we've got... Uh, uh, two fantastic guests. Uh, interestingly enough, both uh, though are on the show for very to talk about very different things. Both former military. One of them is a author uh, with a brand new book out. Is a dear friend of mine. I'm really excited he's going to be joining us, uh, Kamal Ravikant. And then I don't I don't know I don't want to spoil the surprise because the other guest is it's really cool and I think that we'll I've never gotten a chance to talk to him before. But we're both going to talk a little history and also history in a TV show that I like that happens to be having its last season starting in a week. So we got we got a lot to cover. It's a lot for us to discuss, team. Much, much, much for us to get into here. But uh, if you want to talk about the inauguration, anything you got on your mind, 888-900-3393. Please do uh, let me know what your thoughts are on all that. And uh, also, you can go to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Be taking questions and chatting with folks and having conversations there. I can't believe it's already hour three. Back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three today in the Freedom Hut. Our Freestyle Friday continues. Very special guest now, Kamal Ravikant. He's been a U.S. Army infantry soldier, held the hands of dying patients, climbed in the Himalayas. Spoken to audiences around the world, walked 550 miles across Spain, meditated with Tibetan monks, and worked with some of the best people in Silicon Valley. He's also a best-selling author. 
His first book is Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It, which became a massive bestseller. You can get it now on Amazon. His newest book out just now, Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. He's also a dear friend of mine and a fantastic guy. Kamal Ravikant, welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. <laughs> Buck, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Kamal, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the book. You have quite a story. <clears throat> I do. Um, I'm, uh, I'm actually, I was born in India, and uh, we came to this country when I was a little kid. And uh, my mom... Um, Left, we have, you know, my parents divorced, and my mom raised my brother and I on no money, single mom, <clears throat> you know, minimum wage. You know, there was a, we came from like a really, we lived in a very, very hard, we lived in Jamaica, Queens, came from a very, you know, difficult part, uh, like, you know, which is where you used to get jumped every day trying to go to school. And uh, eventually, when I, I graduated high school and I went to college for a year and I left college, and I said, screw this, and I joined the Army. And I was uh, 11 Bravo, I was an infantry soldier. And uh, then went to college after that. And um, after that, I uh, traveled around a bit and moved out to Silicon Valley for the dot-com boom and just threw myself in it, started building companies. And that's when, the, you know, we were actually creating the Internet then. And ended up like the first company I ended up got involved in, helped build, ended up going public and doing really well. And then since then, I've been involved with startups, you know, some that have done well, some that blew up, which is part of the startup game. And... Um, and uh, now I run a venture fund where I actually invest in Internet startups. So I get to actually work with the best of the best entrepreneurs and I get to help them. And I get and I really get to see the future. It's like the best job in the world. And on the, also, I write these books. Um, the books have nothing to do with technology or venture capital. The books are all about just being your personal best self, you know, things I've learned in my life. And, uh, you know, those do very well, too. So that's kind of a bit of a bit of my background. Yeah, come on. Tell me, before we get into the latest book, I actually would like you to tell everybody listening about your first book, which was a, a huge bestseller, which you self-published. Yeah. Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. I have it on my bookshelf. I have read it, but I want you to tell everybody about both what led up to this book and, and what you what the message is. Yeah, um, look, putting that book out changed my life, I, and it came from a life-changing experience. And when I was building my last company, uh, this is about five years ago, and I'd, I'd put all my money into it. And I, you know, the classic entrepreneur journey, I hadn't taken a day off in three and a half years, just worked myself to the bone. And I um, took some investor money, everything was going great, and the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything. Um, you know, like I was, like, here I was, like, a, all the money I saved for the years was gone. I was in credit card debt, and I was really sick. I was just worn out and sick. And the doctors were like, they were throwing all sorts of weird diagnoses that, you know, they weren't sure. And I was depressed out of my mind. Actually, you know, I'd, I'd say depressed would be a good day. And I was miserable. I was suicidal. And and um, one morning I woke up. I'm like, I can't, I can't live this way anymore. I'm gonna get out of this or die trying. And I, I, you know, I sometimes I write thoughts in a journal. And I remember I was so exhausted, so sick. I like crawled over and then got up and just like went to my journal, grabbed a pen, and carved in a vow to myself. And I don't know where this vow came from. It's one of those moments, if you want to call it a spiritual moment or like something bigger than me made this put this vow to love myself. I was going to figure out how to love myself because I just hated myself. I hated my life. I just hated everything. And I thought I, the, the very opposite of where I was, I felt was going to be love. <clears throat> and I wrote as a vow to myself and I'm a huge believer, believer in commitment. You know, when you make commitment to yourself, you know, you, you, you don't burn the ships behind you, you explode them behind you. And I set out to do that and like locked in my bedroom sick I sat to just, just work on my inside because that's all I could do. I couldn't go out and be around people. I just worked on my inside. 
and things started to shift. And within like a month, my entire life had shifted. And all I did was work on my inside. And so I started, and so once I got better, I started sharing this with friends and they, it would really help them. And so like eventually, you know, the, the, you know, people kept asking me to shut them up. I wrote this little book and um, I'd also make a commitment to a friend that I would write it. And I, you know, I wrote this, you know, I spent a month writing it. I really just distilled down what I wish someone had told me when I was at bottom that would have helped me. And I self-published it. I took a big risk on my career because, you know, it was very honest. It was a picture of a guy with a gun to his head and a big heart because it's the heart that saves. And, I, you know, I thought it sold like 10 copies, you know, eight of them bought by me to give to friends, and I was going to destroy my career at Silicon Valley. And a month later, it was the number one self-help book on Amazon. And it's gone on to, I mean, it's hundreds, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. You know, I get, I run into people in the streets that tell me, like, it changed their lives. I get emails telling me, you know, if you stopped them from committing suicide. And all it was was sharing just something that I did, you know, and how anyone can do it step by step. Um, it was the best, best experience of my life, you know, really taking a risk, just sharing my true self, not this startup guy, not this entrepreneur, not this guy who's got his shit together, but a guy who failed and like worked on, on his inside to be better. So that's the story of the book. And anybody who wants to can go on uh, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It on, we type it in Google, but also if you go to Amazon, it's available. It's 8,000 words, so it's, it's a quick read but a, a profound read. And just you can look at the reviews on Amazon and see it, it has changed. People love, love this, uh, this manifesto, really, to love yourself. Um, and then, but I want to talk to you about the new book, Kamal, Rebirth, mm -hmm. A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart, also on Amazon. Talk to me about Rebirth. Yeah, Rebirth is actually a novel that I, that's actually available in any bookstore you go to. Um, I, it's something that I've worked very hard on for years and, and because I believe that ultimately as human beings, we learn best through stories. So I took this experience in my life when I was 25. My dad died, and I wasn't, you know, obviously I wasn't close to him, but he asked me to take his ashes to Ganges because that's where he's from. And I took his ashes there, and, <clears throat> but instead of coming back, I wandered for eight months. I had no money. I had a backpack. I just wandered around the world. And, you know, just after a series of events, I ended up in Spain and walking an old Christian pilgrimage in Spain called the Camino de Santiago. It's been around since the 11th century. And I, it was 550 miles from one end of Spain to the other. And I'm walking it, and I met these amazing people along the way, and they shared with me stories of their lives, and they taught me so much. And that's actually where I was able to, like, come to terms with the death of my father and forgive him. And that's where freedom comes from, ultimately, is forgiveness. You know, that's the irony. It's like, almost like we need to forgive for ourselves, not for others. And so I took that story, I wrote this book that takes place in the Camino de Santiago, but since my, you know, since my 20s, I've learned so much more in my life. So I've layered that into the story. Um, and so that's where rebirth is. It's ultimately a story about, you know, following your heart. You know, it's all the things I've learned when you hit bottom and how you can use that to actually rise to your personal greatness. You know, it's about forgiveness, it's about following your heart, it's, it's about love, it's about letting go, it's about finding new love. Like, so, you know, it's a lot of my life journey into this story. And it's, it's, uh, it just came out two weeks ago, and the response has been just beautiful. You know, like the first email I got, uh, you know, because I put my email in one of my books, was, was blew my mind. It was a woman, she said, I remember her name was Victoria, and she said, you know, I read your book. And I want to let you know, I just got out of prison eight months ago, and I've been really having a hard time forgiving myself and coming to touch, touching my humanity. And your book really helped me do that. Thank you. And that's just, that's why I write. Uh, and I'm really grateful for this book out there. And uh, yeah, that's the new book, Rebirth.
What is the most powerful for you, uh, Kamal? What's the most powerful physical location you've ever been to in terms of its impact on your psyche, your spirituality, your sense of well-being? Because you've done quite a bit of traveling and you've traveled to places that people go because they're trying to that they're searching or they're you talk about this. Yeah, uh, this 500 mile, 550 miles across Spain uh, for you. If, if you had to pick one place, what was the one that really sticks with you the most? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, it could be the Himalayas. It could be even Big Sur in California, which is such an amazing place. Um, I don't know if it could even be boot camp in Fort Benning, Georgia. It was a hell of an experience, right? I'm sure uh, honestly, it was. If you, probably, probably a Big Sur. You know, you know, I said to someone the other day, um, I think when I was, I was on a show, and I was saying, you know, I wish every, every American could do, could do a cross-country tour and just see – just the massive beauty and how it changes in this land. You know, I was fortunate that I've done that. And I would say just the vastness of the West Coast, you know, when you're out there, just the massive mountains. And when you reach Big Sur, just these mountains falling into the Pacific Ocean and you're driving on these windy roads around there, this, you just feel like you just feel it all. It's probably my I think you could. I think it's a very strong argument you made, and I've I've driven that. What is it? Highway one. I've done that drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Big Sur is physically, at least from what I've seen, is the most beautiful place in the country. I, you can argue that. I know a lot of people say, "Oh no, there's you know Yellowstone, or there's some national park, or there's maybe the the, you know, the oak tree down the street from where they grew up." Everyone's allowed entitled to their own opinion on this, but Big Sur is certainly uh, very high up on that list. Uh, the book is Rebirth. A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. You guys can also all follow Kamal on Twitter at Kamal Ravikant, R-A-V-I-K-A-N-T. Hopefully this is going to be another runaway bestseller like his last one, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It. Kamal, my friend, great to have you, sir. We'd love to have you come back and hang out with us anytime. I would love it. Thanks for having me. All right, my man. See you soon. Uh, 888-900-3393, team. We'll be back in just a few. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, we've got some calls in. Ryan in Virginia, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck, I got a movie line for you. All right. All right. We're sort of like 7-Eleven. We're not always doing business, but we're always open. Uh, it's. I like the line. I have no idea what it is, though, so we, we, we can hit the buzzer on that oh, one. What is it? Boondock Saints. I'm going to tell you the truth, man. I've, I've been I've been told to see that a million times. I have never seen that movie. Well, count it as a million and one. You've got to see that movie. It's, I think it's, it's I think it's on Amazon free. Prime or on Netflix. I feel like I saw it recently for free, so maybe I will check it out. Yeah, man, you got to do it. All right, cool. Got what do you think of the inauguration? Um, I think that it was hyped up. Uh, that it was going to be, uh, and I just knew it was, that there was going to be the wall of meat and the motorcycles and that there was going to be a, a lot of commotion. And I I feel like it's just a normal process that's happened over and over again. And there's a lot of momentum behind that process that happens every four years or every eight years. 
And so it just went according to plan. That's what I feel. All right. Thank you for calling in, sir. Shield tie. Garth in Louisiana, you're on the Buck Saxon Show. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Buck. Good afternoon, sir. A uh, couple of things. You know, almost every time I hear your name, I thought, man, you would be the perfect front man for like a, a band, like a wedding reception band or high school prom band. Imagine this, Buck Sexton and the sex tone. That's just perfect. I think it's great. I just need yeah. to learn how to. I just need to learn how to play guitar. But I'm with you. Learn guitar and sing. There you go. Uh, all right. Here's a movie quote. And do you want me to do it with the accents or without? I guess with the accents would help you. I feel like uh, if I if I could take a poll of the audience right now, they would want to hear you do it with the accent, probably. But that okay. wait, 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 wait. What kind of accent is it? Hold on. Uh, Asian? Can I can I do no. Asian? No. <laughs> no. So just do the just do the line. Okay, just do the line. Okay. All right. You're a real pain in the ass. And then there got this. Because that is the shortest route to your brain. And then there's one right after that. These are both at the end of the movie. One guy says, you're incredible. And the other guy says, no, I am better than that. Uh, the, the hangover? No. It's, it's kind of a B movie, kind of an action comedy Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Wait, what? I've never... Okay, this is the first. I've never even heard of this. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins? Remo Williams. It's a early... It's a mid-80s, maybe. Uh, Fred Ward. Joel Gray plays the Asian guy. Uh, a young Kate Mulgrew. Remo Williams. Uh, I... Yeah. Um, I've never even heard of it, so I'll have, to, I'll have to check this out, man. I mean, you definitely stumped me. I'm assuming that's an action movie because you're saying it is. And yeah, it's, I it's will, kind, of I will... a cult, kind of become a cult classic somewhat, uh, but it's, uh, it's worth, it's worth a, a one-time look. Garth, what is, other than New Orleans, the best city to visit in Louisiana since we got a Louisiana man on the line here? Oh, I'm, I'm from Baton Rouge. Love Baton Rouge. Been there my whole life. Baton Rouge's way to go. So a fun place for the weekend. I'm looking for a weekend getaway sometime soon. You think coming out of Baton Rouge would be a good oh, time? I, All right, I'm up. Ch- yeah, you'll find some to do. I mean, obviously, New Orleans is. Uh, it depends what you like to do. If, if you like to get smashed, drunk, then yeah, go to New Orleans. But anywhere you go in Louisiana, great food. Do your research ahead of time. Find the good restaurants to go to because we're definitely all about our food down here. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much, Garth Shields. Hi, good to talk to you. Speaking of movies, uh, I, I think there's a pretty seamless transition we're making here. You have the best uh, chattering now about how there is some similarity between Donald Trump's inauguration speech and a speech given by the villain from uh, the Batman movie, Bane. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. Uh, that that guy, my Bane impression probably needs some work, but it's just generally it's in the right it's in the right general spot. Yeah, yes, I can't really be understood because I have this metal thing over my face. Um, but this is the line, and this is catching catching uh catching people's attention on social media right now. Trump said to the gathered crowd in D.C. Quote, today's ceremony has a very special meaning because today we're not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the people. 
Uh, that's a pretty straightforward. I don't think there's anything that you're going to see there that should give anyone a moment of pause. What's the big deal? And then there's what Bain said, though, on the steps of Gotham's Blackgate prison. We take Gotham from... No, I'll stop. Okay. We take Gotham from the corrupt, the rich, the oppressors of generations who have kept you down with myths of opportunity, and we give it to you, the people. Well, I don't... Well, that's, not sim, that's not similar. First of all, all this rhetoric about... And I got to be honest, the... Uh, the whole thing about politicians saying it's not it's not about me, it's about you. It's like the oldest trick in the book. So let's all just be straightforward about that, right? This is today is really about all of you. I mean, yeah, okay, you know, sure. It's kind of also about the person that's taking power. But I I know I I appreciate the sentiment. I know what's being said. Uh, it it does though just sort of sound all the same after a while with, you know, this is really about all of you. It's not quite as bad as when people get an award at the Oscars or something. And this isn't for me. This is for all of the, and insert, you know, little people, insert oppressed group, insert, uh, and I meant like the little people out there, not little people as in, you know what I mean? You know, like don't forget the little people when you're all big and famous. Gotta be, you know, these days, terminology, man, it's, it's uh, a thing you got to always keep an eye on. Um, one thing I, I really am excited about with the Trump presidency is maybe now it'll be harder for the left to destroy people, particularly in media, who say one thing with no ill intent or who make some mistake in their wording or who, you know, one of the make some mistake in any context and they can't just be drummed out of the out of the public square. Oh, so horrifying. Did you hear what he said? I think when you have a President Trump, it, it'll be a lot easier for people to say, um, look at this guy. That's the President of the United States. Look at the way he speaks and talks about things. I'm going to get uh, in trouble for saying what exactly? What did I say again? Yeah. One of the biggest benefits, I think, of a Trump presidency, people talk about dashing political correctness. I'm hoping that it changes a lot about what we can get in trouble for and what we can't. So that alone will be one of the uh, good outcomes of having Donald Trump as president of the United States is that the bar for what you can get in trouble for saying, I hope, becomes a higher bar. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team Freestyle Friday continues with a special guest, Benerson Little. He is the author of the book, The Golden Age of Piracy, The Truth Behind Pirate Myths. He's a pirate expert, a pe- expert who's appeared in multiple TV documentaries. He is the historical consultant for the Black Sails series on Stars, a show that I enjoy and actually has its final season coming up here in just about a week. He also served in the U.S. Navy as a Navy SEAL and has worked as a special operations and intelligence analyst in the past. Fascinating resume. Uh, we really are excited to have Benerson Little with us now. Thank you for calling in. Uh, thank you for having me. 
Uh, all right, let's start with the the broad strokes about pirates, the golden age of piracy in the in the Caribbean. You've got the show Black Sails. You consult on that. Tell me about some of the the big names and the big figures from from this period: uh, Blackbeard, Charles Vane, some of these individuals. What is the story behind them? Why do we still know their names today? Well, we know their names primarily because they were Anglo-American pirates and because of a guy named Charles Johnson who wrote a fascinating book about them. Um, these really weren't the greatest um, Anglo-American pirates at all. You had some bigger pirates in the late 17th century, but these guys got a lot more press. Um, they really weren't quite the badasses we think they were. Um, you put them up against the Royal Navy, for example, it generally didn't fare very well. Um, and a good example I like to use is uh, Blackbeard's last fight, you know, you, you'll read all kinds of accounts about that and how they kill, he killed a bunch of the British sailors who were coming to get him. But if you distill it right down to the final hand-to-hand combat action, where the numbers were roughly equal, let's say 10 or 12 on each side, going hand-to-hand close combat, these Royal Navy sailors and volunteers wiped the pirates out to a man, killed every one of them that they actually engaged in hand-to-hand combat with, while every one of these Royal Navy sailors was still standing. Some of them were seriously wounded, but they were still standing. Um, Again, it's mostly uh, the very positive press that we've had on these guys, and the fact that in some ways they were rebelling um, against the loss of uh, three or four generations of tradition of sea roving, especially against the Spanish. Um, That was cut short at the end of Queen Anne's War. Uh, They were told to pack it up and go home. Uh, They didn't like that answer, and so they um, took to the black flag and turned against um, ships of any nation. Now, in the series Black Sails, on on which you consult, and I've seen it all the way up to current uh, the the current seasons. I mean, the next season's coming out, I think, in a week or so. So I've seen all three seasons or four seasons so far. Uh, yeah, and and fun. Long John Silver is is also one of the characters. Uh, I don't know any of his backstory. Why is he? I mean, there's even a a, a fish store chain named after him. Uh, he's purely fictional, you know. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson invented the character. Um, Steven was fairly accurate when it came to pirates. He made them bad guys, which is what most of them were. Um, but he created this fascinating character, Long John Silver. And what Black Sails, the writers and uh, showrunner, have done is develop this interesting backstory about how he might have come into being had he been a real person. Um, the show is very, very much about. Um, friendship and honor and betrayal, and these very strong Shakespearean characters. Um, they've done a very, very good job, I think, portraying that. Um, and I do like the way they um, presented Long John Silver, kind of this balance between Flint, who has his one goal for, you know, thwarting the empire and creating this independent pirate colony on New Providence, and then Long John Silver, who's kind of a foil against him, and is leading everybody in another direction. Uh, I can't get too much into that. Uh, beyond that, um, it's a great fourth season that's coming up. Um, everything from the drama to a, a lot of very classic um, set pieces, action at sea, um, things like that. So, who are the who are the historical figures that are who, who does? So, we mentioned Charles Vane. Who else has a ba- and uh, the character Blackbeard? Who else has some historical roots that appears on the show? Um, the only other main character. Um, that would appear on that show would be um, Anne Bonny's uh, lover, and that would be about it. 
Um, trying to think if there's any other main characters. There's been a number of minor characters on the well, show. And, and Bonnie was a real, was a, was a, a lady pirate, right? Uh, or a lady companion of a pirate. She was. Um, the show has done what uh, most pirate films and um, pirate novels have done. And that's kind of combined her character with that of Mary Reed. Uh, they always like Anne Bonnie because she's supposed to be sexy. And they also kind of turn her into um, very much a um, warrior-type woman as well. Um, the historical Anne Bonnie probably had no experience at all in arms. But Mary Reed, uh, her companion in adventure, companion in arms, did. But she's kind of a combination of both characters in the show. So now, where do we get these ideas? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead uh... Oh, no, I was just mentioning Jack Rackham, you know, would be the other major historical character. Although, truthfully, we probably wouldn't know much about him today except for the fact that he was Anne Bonny's lover. You know, the women got all the press, you know, because they really weren't women pirates during the Golden Age, except for these two. And so Jack Rackham kind of got his um, name a lot better known because he was affiliated with Anne Bonny. Now, a lot of our perception of pirates, and not including the perception that has been molded by uh, Johnny Depp uh, pretending to be a member of the Rolling Stones, pretending to be a pirate, uh, you know, recently in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but Robert Louis Stevenson, right, Treasure Island. So that that is, I think, probably the most famous literary work ever on, on this uh, on this period. Uh, but we have these perceptions that that continue to this day of. Uh, guys with uh, a guy with a sort of wooden peg leg, a cutlass, a parrot, eye patch, and sort of flowing, you know, sort of bright colored clothing. The Jolly Roger. What what of this stuff is real, and what is just kind of our imaginations having taken over? It's kind of a mis mishmash. There's some truth to a lot of that. Um, most seamen probably may have picked up a parrot, for example, in their travels. You know, um, exotic birds were popular then, they're uh, popular now, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily a, a symbol of a pirate, for example, just like the eye patch. Um, if a pirate might have, you know, lost an eye for disease or through battle, sure, he'd probably wear a black patch. But other than that, you know, there's no reason to associate that um, with piracy. It's the primary literary. Um, followed by a lot of 19th century illustrators who developed this almost caricature of what the pirate should look like. There's still a certain degree of truth to it. A lot of pirates, not all of them, but a lot of pirates, especially in the late 17th century, did dress very flamboyantly uh, when they could. But most of them were common seamen, and they would have dressed like common seamen. Who was the, uh, you mentioned before that there are some names that we know, but we know them for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with their record of piracy. Uh, who was the, the true scourge of the, the British Royal Navy in the Caribbean? Uh, who, who, was, who were the, the, the pirates that had uh, created the most havoc against the authorities of the day in, in the late 17th and uh, early 18th century? Well, you almost have to separate the um, two periods. The late 17th century, you essentially you have piracy or buccaneering and la flibus, as the French would have called it, um, which was government supported, either you know with a wink and a nod or quite openly at times. And these guys sailed against the Spanish. They helped protect um, English and French colonies against um, uh, Spanish uh, reprisals primarily, and they brought a lot of silver into the colonies to help them stay stable. Um, you're looking here at Henry Morgan, for example, on the English side, um, uh, Laurence de Graff, who was a Dutchman in French service, 
um, on the French side. These were some very, very uh, successful uh, freebooters in the late 17th century. As you go into the early 18th century, um, uh, Blackbeard was moderately successful, probably... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names that were the most successful um, early 18th century. And by success, I mean these guys captured a lot of merchant shipping. Um, they were not successful in terms of the Royal Navy except by evading them. When it came to one-on-one -on -one action against the Royal Navy or any well-trained Navy, pirates generally lost and lost badly. You know, there's a difference. Pirates, their goal was to go out and grab uh, merchant shipping and merchants tended not to fight back. Royal Navy, however, was trained to close with an enemy and pound the hell out of it, you know, basically kill the enemy, force them to surrender, one or the other. Um, pirates, it, it wasn't good business to get in that kind of fight. Um, they, didn't, they weren't trained for that kind of fighting. They didn't drill for that kind of fighting. And because they were uh, democratically organized, they could basically pick and choose their fights as well. And while a captain had full authority in battle, um, there's a certain degree of democratic process when you align it with military actions, which isn't always the best way to um, fight a battle, for example. But, but so that part of black sails is accurate then, the whole voting for the captain and the politics on, on board ship and, and on shore of who's going to be in charge. That actually happened. That's all very, very accurate. It was um, very much democratic. It was very, very ugly democracy, cause, which democracies by nature are very, very messy. Um, and you had just as many factions among pirates. In fact, you had just as many um, types of people, personalities, you name it, but among pirates as you did um, among any modern democracy. Everybody, all of the power struggles and everything else. Um, Black Sails depicted that very, very well. That was one of the things I was proudest of of the show is that they actually went into this and they didn't whitewash it. They showed how you have different competing factions. Um, it's all ugly. And what, was Nassau a, a pirate a pirate hub? I mean, now we think of Nassau, at least you know, in the States, we think of it as a place you go on vacation in the Bahamas. It's pretty, it's quiet, there's you know, a casino or two, whatever. Uh, Nassau yeah. was a real pirate hub in its day? It was very briefly, uh, a few times in the late 17th century. Basically, the English crown owned it, but they, it was very unproductive, and it was very hard to keep a government there. Um, Spanish raided it a few times, uh, but it was a, a natural, um, little kind of a central focus point for um, anybody who was trying to get away um, from the mainstream, and that included pirates. Um, it was a good place for them to settle down. It was ideally located. You had quick access not only to the Caribbean, but to the north coast of the Americas. Um, problem was the English government with Woods Rogers shut it down pretty quickly. And once they did that, pirates kind of dispersed. And because the English government especially did not have enough navies um, in North America, the Caribbean, and they didn't um, address enough assets for the suppression of piracy, uh, the pirates fanned out from there and basically tried to stay one step ahead of any pursuers and just, you know, sailed from place to place, eventually ending up primarily on the coast of Africa, um, grabbing merchant shipping as they could, um, grabbing slave ships, ransom, ransoming them back to their owners. Um, but they really, without a, a strong base and a strong infrastructure, they weren't going to last for very long. And eventually, when governments actually got serious about suppressing them, same thing with Somali piracy, 
they shut them down very quickly. Benerson, before we let you go, and I know you're a consultant for the TV show Black Sails, but if you had to recommend one pirate movie, what's the first one that comes to mind? Oh, Captain Blood. I know it's, it's fantasy, but I love that movie. It's the 30, 1935 version with Errol Flynn. Um, it, it's probably the best pirate film ever made. It's, again, it's, it's a lot of it's pirate fantasy, but it's, it's a very, very enjoyable movie. Um, after okay. that, I'd say Treasure Island with Charlton Heston. All right, fantastic. Benerson Little, thank you for your service, sir. I know you were a Navy SEAL, and I want to make sure everybody knows about your book, The Golden Age of Piracy, The Truth Behind Pirate Myths. You can get it up on Amazon, and you can go to Benerson's website, BenersonLittle.com. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Well, as Trump now is the president, is the commander in chief, it might just be fun one more time. We'll probably do this more in the future as well. To just take a little stroll down memory lane for how the press reacted to Trump's candidacy announcement. Play it. There are no words. How do you even have a straight face right now? There are no words to describe. What just happened? <laughs> Ed Rendell, do you have any doubt that this is anything more than a carnival show? And you watched our speech today. We all laugh about it. And I'm sitting here laughing out loud, you know, yep. you know, for, for the entire you know, front part of the show here as we're talking about it. I mean, it was a rambling, a rambling mess of a speech. That said, it was very entertaining. I was howling, howling. He's got gumudgeons of money. He's got a lot of recognition. And he just became the 12th presidential candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, is it typical Donald Trump fashion or is it hilarity run amok? Hilarity run amok. Well, it's not so funny anymore. Don't think anyone's going to be laughing about that one right now. Look, I agree. It seemed like. No way at the time, but yep, there was a way. And anyone who thought there was, it was wrong. So we have to admit all that. Uh, team, definitely want to hear your thoughts on today's show. I know we've been mixing it up a lot with guests on Fridays. Uh, so give me, you know, give me your thoughts. Maybe we'll do a post with the different guests, and I want your comments on who you liked and, and who maybe you weren't necessarily as into. Maybe one of them you want to hear from again in the future. Um, so I like to do freestyle friday with all of you in mind so please do let me know your thoughts facebook.com slash buck sexton best place to uh put those uh put those down on the screen for me to read uh next week monday and uh tuesday i'm in here in the freedom hut i believe wednesday i'm going to be in for mr rush limbaugh on the eib which is very exciting um until then of course have a fantastic weekend enjoy your inauguration celebration or non-celebration no matter what my friends, she'll tie. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.